Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Many professionals find themselves in the bowels of big corporate life, not exactly calling all the shots, and might dream of one day actually running the show. Well, my guest is a brilliant example of doing just that. With international management experience in Asia, Japan, and Europe, including merger and acquisitions, business development, and sales in the telecommunications industry, including at Cisco Systems and Ericsson, he made a bold move while mid-career into investment management and has never looked back. He now runs his own independent investment advisory firm, providing investment management and guidance to emerging wealthy individuals and their families, managing over $130 million in assets. He's taught and lectured at Duke University and the University of North Carolina on topics from acquisitions to financial and retirement planning. I am delighted to welcome my good friend and former Cisco colleague, the founder and owner of LFM Wealth Management, Larry McManus. Larry, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Thank you, Molly. It's great to be here. It is my pleasure. We go way back to the early days at Cisco. It seems like another lifetime. I have to say I'm grateful for my years there as I met so many awesome human beings like you. Um, I think I was there 16 years, which I never expected. I remember when you branched out, which was sort of like unheard of and so proud of what and how you've created your success uh, on your terms. So thanks for being willing to share uh, with listeners a fascinating journey you've been on. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It's It's been an interesting journey and um, maybe one day I'll write a book. Everyone keeps telling me I should. I think that'd be fabulous. So I know family is big. So take us back to the early days of the McManus clan. So I'll start with my mom and my dad. Um, so I, I, I was born, um, you know, a year after my parents got married. Um, my mom it, it was always kind of the supportive, loving, stay-at-home mom. You kind of expect in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, she was very firm um, and, and always had a good business mind. She was the one that always you know, kind of ran the household, if you will. Um, my dad probably has, a, has a more of a, a longer arc than that, but you know, he grew up very poor in New York. Uh, his parents were very focused on making sure that all of their children um, got strong educations. Um, so... The other thing is, is my my dad was kind of raised by his grandparents. My, his mother was 48 uh, and his dad was 51. So clearly a late in life baby, even for somebody born in 1940. Um, and my dad was, he was hard. I mean, he was hard on us. And and not like a militaristic hard, but just, you know, we had to get to do our grades. We had to do our work, um, you know, very focused on that. Very focused actually on the family too. Um and and determined that all of us, the four of us, uh, would kind of succeed in life. Um, and I kind of I, I wrote a little summary, just kind of in, in, that I had examples of. But you know, my parents were they taught us how to be adaptable in really different situations. 
Um, they left New York very early, uh, kind of against the guidance of all their family, um, which was kind of a leadership. Uh, my parents always gave back uh, to the community, whether it was you know monetarily or volunteering or doing different things. Um, they were never afraid, you know, to put themselves out into the world um, on several different facets of that. And they also taught us life's not easy and it's not fair. Um, and that, you know, we've got it pretty good and that, you know, you need to continue to get back, uh, you know, and then always stand up for yourself, right? And always, but also stand up for your family and for others. So it goes beyond just, you know, focusing on yourself, but, you know, you're part of a bigger, bigger entity. Um, and kind of the one thing my dad always told me, and I was reflecting on this the other day, he, he says, the world can take everything away from you, literally. He says, the only two things you'll have left is your reputation and your integrity. Um, he says, so never do anything to ruin those two things. So, you know, um, very, I think very poignant things, especially when you go into the business for yourself or you just even work in the corporate world. Uh, but to give you a quick snapshot, I mean, I'm the oldest of four. Um, my parents being good Catholic uh, parents, they had us in quick succession. My my brother's a year younger than I am. Uh, my sister, Kate, is uh, 15 months younger than him. And my sister, DJ, um, is about 22 months behind Kate. So that's kind of the, the essence of who we were. Um, you know, I... My dad uh, joined the army because they had the best medical training. Um, so we moved uh, in seven and a half years. We were at five different bases. Uh, the longest we spent anywhere was three years in Hawaii, which was awesome. That was really my first recollection as a kid. Um, because my dad didn't have to go to Vietnam, uh, we ended up in Columbia, South Carolina at Fort Jackson. And that's where he um, got out of the, the army and went into private practice with a group uh, in Columbia, South Carolina. And it, kind of the first business lesson I learned from that was, um, you know, my dad was a very trusting individual, um, especially coming out of the military. Uh, he uh, spent five years at this practice in Columbia. And during 1979, we, my mom and dad were taking a lot of these day trips. My dad was taking time off, which was very unusual. And then my parents would be gone all day and we would have babysitters. And I was, you know, seventh, eighth grade. And I'm like, I really don't need babysitters. What are you guys doing? So finally, my parents came to us and, and my dad said, well, I'm, I'm leaving uh, the practice I'm at in Columbia. And I'm going to I'm going out on my own. I'm starting my own practice uh, in Newbury, South Carolina. So um, I saw that as kind of a, a pivotal moment for a couple of reasons, because what we ended up learning was is that um, they had promised, verbally promised my father uh, to be a partner after five years. So when my dad was ready to buy into the practice, uh, they told him, no, 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 you're just going to stay an employee. Um, and my father was really upset with that because they didn't honor, you know, what they had said. Uh, and he said, well, that's fine. I, I'll, I'll go do my own thing. Um, so, you know, at the age of 39, he and my mother decided, you know, to branch out on their own and start their own business. So, I mean, that was really kind of the, the seed that's, you know, was planted that you can, no matter where you are in life, you can, you know, start over and do different things. Um, 
the other thing for me, I mean, personally, eighth grade was a nightmare. Um, I was struggling personally, you know, socially, I was way behind. Academically, I was struggling that year. Um, the, the middle school I was in had 1,200 kids. It just, you know, I was clearly a, a minnow in a pond. And um, I, I actually went to my dad because we knew that they were looking at commuting. So I asked him, I said, well, dad, I, I want to go with you. I want to go live with you in Newberry uh, and be with you, which my parents were kind of surprised at. Um, but I was just ready to get out of Columbia. I was ready to get out of the eighth grade. Like anything new would have been better. So that was a great move for me. Um, you know, I, I walked in, I walked into the middle school on day one. Um, and I was back then I was even tall. I was, I was six foot in the eighth grade, you know, size 13 shoe, uh, the basketball coach walked up to me and said, do you play basketball? I said, yes. He says, you're on the team practice starts at three o'clock. Right. So it was just, it was a very different world, you know, than Columbia where I couldn't make the basketball team. And, you know, it was just a big, a big thing. But my dad and I, um, it was great because we, it was like my brother. I mean, we were in a, we were twin beds above his office. Uh, I, I cooked meals and my dad worked and I'd come home after basketball practice or after school and ride my bike. And, you know, that lasted for about four months by the time my parents sold the house and, and moved up to, uh, to Newberry. Um, and one of the interesting things is, is that I think my mother always saw that I had a pretty good business head on my shoulders. Um, my brother and I were always running some type of, uh, money-making scheme, whether we were collecting aluminum cans off the golf course, trash cans or selling golf balls or anything like that. So they, they would bring, my parents would bring me like to the, to these bank meetings they had when they had to refinance my dad's practice. You know, and this is like an 82. I remember going to the bank with them and they signed a note for, you know, 13%. And, you know, my dad goes, well, just make it through, you know, it, so it was always this attitude of, you know, we can do this and just kind of move forward and, keep doing things. So um, that was a big kind of, you know, impetus that got me into high school. You know, I did a lot of odd jobs in high school and that type of thing. You are, um, Wayne, I didn't realize enterprising part of you. And I also appreciate that um, that's a lot as an eighth grader to make that ask. So that's, a, there's a lot of maturity. And I guess maybe you're the oldest you're used to running the show there. Um the I'm I'm curious the schooling your dad's medical and what have you. So as you were getting out, how did you think about you know college? Um, so college was pretty easy. Um, so my father, my dad, father had a little bit of sense of humor. So he he sat us down. We were all in high school, and he goes, "You can go to any school you want to." And I was like, awesome. I'm going to go like to Hawaii or something. He's like, as long as it's in state and it's a public institution. So, <laughs> so, so functionally for me, and I get that, right? I mean, he was going to have, they literally going to have one of us in college or they would have three of us in college for like seven years. Right. And then, you know, as the four of us went through. Um, so I understood that from a money perspective. And so functionally for me, there was really only two schools in the state of South Carolina that you could go to. It's either the University of South Carolina or Clemson. Um, and my father and his medical practice um, was tied to the University of South Carolina. They were the team physicians. And I, 
that was actually the last place I was going to go. First of all, it was too close to home. And my dad, you know, my dad was just there. So it was just like, I don't want to go there. So I'm going to Clemson. Um, and Clemson was awesome. Uh, so that was really kind of the how I ended up at Clemson. Um, the only school I applied to was Davidson, and they offered me a partial scholarship, but it wasn't enough to, to cover the difference. So I ended up going to Clemson. So were you like uh, academic guy, jock guy, basketball? So I... Uh, at Clemson, I would say I was more of an academic. Um, going into Clemson, I had a, a good mentor that was really encouraging me to get my real estate license. Um, so I, I went and I got my real estate license after struggling um, through freshman year as, as pre-med. So I went in as pre-med with the original grand plan of being a uh, orthopedic surgeon in sports medicine. Wow. You know, I thought that would be kind of the which was kind of following in my dad's footsteps because that's, I mean, not that he spent a hundred percent of his time doing that, but they did do a, a lot of time spending around that. Um, so I went to Clemson. I was a football trainer and about two months in with division one, and you know, the athletic department owns you and, and, and I support any of the athletes that do that. I mean, you're very dedicated to that sport, but um, I was beginning to realize that, I was struggling academically because I did wasn't having enough time to study. And after about so after the two months I went, I resigned from the from the football team. And my father was livid because, you know, he it's a small state and he did know the team position at Clemson. So he just he was a little embarrassed by that. And then you know, I just went back to him and I said, Dad, I I, I gotta focus on school. You know, if I'm gonna go to med school, you know, I'm not gonna the football things that is not a big deal, right? I mean, so I really struggled um, in, in pre-med. So, you know, I was spending seven hours in the pre-med biology lab and second semester, a couple of the TAs were like coming up to me and going, you know, maybe you should really rethink this thing because, you know, like this is, you're just for the next eight years in labs. And I'm like, and I can't, by spring break, I was like, this is not what I want to do. Um, so Don Dowling, who was, the guy who's my mentor who was leaning on me to, to go into real estate uh, came up and he helped me a little bit. He said, uh, I'll talk to your dad. And I said, okay, that would help me out a lot because uh, I don't need two huge disappointments my freshman year of college um, with my dad. So he did talk to my dad and I went home and my dad uh, accepted the fact that I wasn't going to med school, which was very hard for him. Um, and he just, he just looked at me and he says, then just be the best business person you can be. And, and then from that on, moment on, I mean, he was pretty supportive of what I did. He didn't know what I was doing, but he was supportive. Um, so I got my real estate license. I then ended up working at a real estate firm in Clemson, which was an awesome job. Uh, Russ A. Bear and, and Paige Lee hired me on. Got to work there for about 90 days. And I, I overheard one evening as I was doing homework in my office, uh, Russ and Paige were like, we're losing 10 grand a month on this property management division. You know, they didn't really know what to do. Um, and what I was doing was I was signing leases, showing people around. I was kind of the front end of the, of the business. And we had three other employees. I mean, you know, we managed a lot. We had uh, 400 units. We had a commercial mall that we managed. Um, and then what I would do is I would show properties, sign leases. And then on the weekends, I'd come in and help do all the books. Um, 
So one night I knew that Russ always came in on Thursday nights to uh, sign commission checks for Friday morning. So I came in and I wrote out all the things I would do differently if I were running the place. And I went into Russ on, on Thursday night and had a conversation with him. And I said, this is what I would like to do and showed him the list of things. And the next morning or the next day, when I came back in from class, uh, the admin who sits in the middle of the building, she's like, Russ wants to see you immediately. So I go walk up to his office. I'm like, what's going on? I don't know. What, what, what did I do? I'm like, I don't think I did anything wrong. So he, he's there and he goes, close the door. So it, back then they had, he had sliding glass doors in all the offices. And um, so, so I close the sliding glass door. It's eight feet long, right? So it makes a lot of noise. So he closed the door. He goes, sit down. He goes, we fired the manager this morning. He says, you're not running the place. I said, you're not paying me enough. So he gave me a raise right there on the spot, put me in charge. And then he goes, he says, and he says, if you, he says, you said you get this place profitable in 90 days. He says, we're, you know, we'll, ch we'll check in in 90 days. I was like, okay. So he goes, let's go back to the back and, you know, announce you're the person and it's all yours. And literally Paige and Russ just let me run the place. Uh, we got it profitable. We got it moving. Um, I did that for two years. Loved it. Um, got to spin off a couple of little independent businesses because we were having problems finding cleaning contractors and painting contractors. And I was hiring out college kids and, um, you know, and I was you know making money. So, I mean, it, it was a, it was a great training ground. So college for me, even though I did well at Clemson, uh, academically, there wasn't really like an academic mentor. Everyone's, you know, some people have big academic mentors in college. I just never did. I, you know, really my mentorship was, you know, working every day at this real estate office, you know, and running a property management firm, you know, so, I mean, year round, I never left Clemson after that. I mean, I went home every once in a while, but, you know, I stayed at Clemson and, and did that. So wait a second. So this guy, you're like 20. Right. He's yeah, like, 20. he's like, hi, you were running the place. Okay. That's just unbelievable. So good for them. But I'm curious as a young person to have the, the presence to say, you're not paying me, me enough. I need a raise. <laughs> How did you know to do that? Well, because well, I wasn't getting paid enough. It, you know, so I knew that the manager was making more money. I didn't know what his salary was, but I was like, well, I should be making more money than I don't know, whatever I was making, $4 an hour or something. <laughs> so, you know, this is also, you know, the mid 80s. So uh, I don't even remember what I was making, but um, I do remember I made the big mistake of my parents' CPA was doing my taxes. So I sent all my stuff home and um, my mother calls me up and she goes, well, I just met with with the CPA, and she's like, uh, you're now paying for all of your books, uh, and we're not going to get any more food money. She's like, you're making too much money up there. And that's what my mother said. So I was like, mom, I, you know, that's what I'm doing. I just, you know, I, I've i always been able to, I've always been a good negotiator when it came to, to that. And, I, and that's what I try to coach my kids on is, you know, always ask for more, figure out what the market is, you know, and negotiate, right? Um, you know, in traveling in Asia, you know, there's cultures where they they almost expect you to negotiate, right? And they they set the price forty percent higher, and they know that you're going to pay forty percent less, but you got to negotiate it down. It's it's a cultural thing, um, and you know, for the most part, Americans just pay sticker price and move on. 
So <laughs> that is genius. Okay, so it's so I like how do you get to Cisco? I mean, so how did so your real estate like you're a real estate guy? You're in college, and then did you come out and do that? What did you do after? So uh, the Dowling brothers, as I call them. So so Bill and Don really wanted me to come into real estate. Um, Bill Dowling was doing uh, hotel development. Uh, he was starting to do it in Ireland. And he was like, look, can you go get your MBA and then come work for me? And I was like, wow, this would be cool. Okay, this so so plan two is, okay, I'm going to go end up and become an international real estate you know, developer. Um, so I, I got into the University of South Carolina, um, got a scholarship, so I got a free ride. They actually paid me to go to school, which is awesome. And the big reason I went to South Carolina is I needed to get that international piece. And in Arizona State, um, Thunderbird International School was really the only other place you could go. And Thunderbird required you to come out with a fluent in a language. And I, I am I am horrible at languages. I just cannot do it. I, you know, I've been in 40 countries. I've worked all over the place. I and I pick up enough to, you know, to get by, but I, I to learn fluency was just, you know, it's just a mountain I keep could never get over. I could I just couldn't do it even in Spanish in, in high school. So the University of South Carolina was offering them, like, like, look, we're trying to look, also looking for a few, we're looking for four students that are willing to go test drive a couple of universities in Europe because we want to do this international MBA with English only. So I knew that they had this program at the Copenhagen School of Business. Um, so that's how I ended up at the University of South Carolina. Um, I did my you know, three semesters in South Carolina and then headed over to Copenhagen. Um, and that was just a tremendous eye opener because um, that's really the first time I ever left the United States. Um, my mom was completely freaked out because um, that was the year, you know, right after Lockerbie, um, the Lockerbie bombing. Um, so she was really nervous about me going the whole time. And I told her it'd be fine. So that's what led really to my first kind of mergers and acquisitions job. I, um, the, the the CEO of a, a major company from, from Denmark um, was doing a lot of acquisitions in the United States, and his dad was my advisor. And he he came in to, to talk to the class, you know, as, as they normally do in MBA schools. They roll, they bring in, you know, C-level sweet people to kind of tell you what goes on and that type of stuff. And the interesting thing is most people were not interested in listening to what this guy had to say. Um, and I was like, well, look, he's buying companies $100 million a clip. I mean, he needs managers. He's, he, you know, he can't be, you know, he's got to be hiring somebody. Um, and everyone kind of left. So I said, I went up to him and talked to him for about a half hour. And at the end of it, he looked at me and he goes, he goes, hand me his business card. He says, when you get back to the United States, he says, you know, call my office. He said, I'll hire you. He says, I need people. So I was like, okay. <laughs> so the next thing I know is, okay, now I'm going to work for this major janitorial company that, you know, and, I, you know, I show up in Atlanta um, and I, I got, I met a new wonderful uh, mentor, Ed Sundberg, and he was a, a nuclear, a former nuclear uh, Navy captain. Uh, so he ran things by the book. So he was great to work for. So very structured, you know, very fast paced. Um and he was uh, trying to manage the CEO, 
because they would buy these companies and they were literally were buying them on the books. They were never even going out to look at them. So, but I ended up being the guy that got sent out to go look at them. So, I mean, I remember second week of my job, um, they come in, they go, Hey, here's your tickets. You got to go to Denver. We want a full analysis on all the buildings and which ones are profitable, which ones are not. Um, we want you to run uh, your opinion on who do we keep and who do we fire. And if we don't keep this, then what should we package this up and sell it for? So you're just kind of like going, really? Okay, I'll go do that. You know, so, you know, so I, I felt like I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing. These guys didn't train me on anything. So I just, you know, I put on my Excel spreadsheets. I went through, you did you kind of what you did in finance. I, we put it together. I came back. They took it up to New York. They loved it. They, they actually kept most of, of the business and they moved the manager out. And it's like, they did everything I recommended. I was like, wow, that's kind of crazy. And then I got sent to um, an analytical, uh, an environmental testing laboratories. Uh, Henrik had bought uh, a firm in California. They, they were in eight cities in California. And they were tired of, Henrik goes, I'm tired of sending a million dollars every two weeks out there to cover payroll. He goes, I don't understand this company. He says, we, they, can, they have no cash flow. So Ed flew out with me, did intros, stayed with me for two or three days, right? And then the interesting thing is I just sat down and um, I said, what's your accounts payable? And it was, I mean, it was huge. I mean, it was like $30 million. I said, all right, just bring me your top five accounts payable people, you know, the, or accounts. And the first one was Shell Oil. So I said, well, who's your contact at Shell? Let's call Shell. So I called the person at Shell. I said, hey, look, you owe us $4 million. Why can't we get paid? And they said, look, he says, we send you POs and you send us bills, but we can't match up the bills to the POs because you don't put our PO number on your bill. I said, that's all we need? He said, yeah. So, you know, basically I, I turned back to my, my staff. I said, go get all the Shell bills and put, match up POs, right? And then we got paid like a week later. So, you know, we set up a process. And so, I mean, I, I did this like three times over and um, I just became known internally as like, just send Larry, he'll go fix it. Um, you know, and they, and they didn't accept everything I did. I mean, but that's, you know, where I was just thrown into situations and, you know, you just had to figure it out. And a lot of times it wasn't that the solution was hard. It just needed to be plowed through and, you know, a new process put in place. So, um, so I was at that job. I functionally got hired in New York to do this functionally the same thing. I was up in New York for a year. My wife hated New York. So, she, so after about a year, um, Lisa Martini, who was another great mentor that I had, she, I just went into her one day. I said, Lisa, this, this, this isn't working for me. I said, it's actually, it's not working for my family. I said, um, so we need to figure out what I can do to make you guys whole to kind of wrap up what I'm doing. And then, you know, I need to kind of exit stage left. And, and she was great. I mean, you know, we worked it out and we ended up moving back to Columbia because that's where we thought we wanted to be. Um, I went to a startup, but you know, that was a good transition. I, I guess, I mean, <laughs> from that standpoint, um, went to work for a startup. Uh, learned a lot there, completely um, redid how they were doing sales and marketing. Um, and, and the fun thing there was is the uh, 
we were basically it's understanding what you're selling or you know what you're trying to sell it. And what we were selling was a, a security product into government, right? So our biggest clients were Federal Bureau of Prisons, DOD, NASA. Um, we did, um, and then we had the state prison systems in the United States. So basically, we were a construction product for security that needed to get in there. And the whole world was really dictated by the, uh, well, by politics, but also by the architects. So I went back to our engineer and I said, look, there's 1,200 architects in America um, that, you know, spec products that go into jails and prisons. I said, can we just print up all of our designs on floppy disks and I'll send them out to everybody in the country? So, and then I followed up with everybody. So, right. So it was just, it was kind of a tenacity thing. So it was like figuring out what, what the end person who was specking it needed, getting them the documents easily. So they, li- they literally just could load the, the floppy drive, download it. And then they, we were done. We were in the spec. And then it was like amazing. Within about eight or nine months of us sending those things out, we were starting to get calls. It was like, oh, you've been specking this product and we need to get a quote. And it just, it just kind of mushroomed from there. So that, that was a lot of fun. Um, so we just wait, wait, wait a second. That's crazy. So you're like, you're, you're like, you go to the guys, you work out the process. You're like you said, you kind of peel it back, and you're like, we'll print out the designs on floppy disks and send them everywhere. Yep, that is just genius. I would never. Have, I mean, that, I'm hilarious that the floppy disk is actually coming in to the show. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So, yeah, and. I, you know, and the next thing you needed, and just to take it just one step further, so the interesting thing in, in the construction process, and I don't know if it still does this or not, but there's this thing called the Dodge Report. It came out every Monday, which listed literally every construction project in America, commercial construction project, whether it was an airport all the way down to a strip mall. So, you know, all I really needed was, you know, anything DOD, prisons, or military. So, you know, you could cut this thing up and it, it had like who was the designer, who was the, the lead, you know, government contact person. And, you know, it, it, we didn't really have databases back then. I mean, we were starting to build some, but, you know, so you just built an Excel spreadsheet, I mean, the cross section. I mean, it wasn't too hard to do. Um, and I think you you were the one that told me that we love going in to do acquisitions, right? When the company was run by spreadsheets, we actually knew that they were doing something when they were trying to implement all these weird systems. But, um, yeah, it was just, it was, you know, follow Dodge, get the stuff out, follow up with them and just, you know, just keep going. I, you know, it was kind of funny. I love it. Segue a bit to family life. Cause you sound like you're really into your work. How did you nurture family balance it if you did? Yeah. So, you know, it, so it was, I, I'd say it was difficult. I mean, um, I was sacrificing career. I was sacrificing some of my family for career. Um, there's that clearly went on. Um, you know, my father um, was a great example and not a great example. But you know, my dad worked really hard. He was gone a lot, and you know, it was just he was putting bread on the table. And and that's kind of I mean, that's you know how I wandered into this or looked into this. Um, I was a very so I traveled a lot. Uh, we moved a lot, especially with it, when I was with Erickson for for five or six years. Um, you know, just because there were bigger opportunities, and you know they were offered to me, and we just kind of took it and ran. Um, 
the, the kind of the key things I always was there. I was like, I was always there for important dates. I was pretty much always home on weekends. And um, I was very involved in the kids' activities, right? So I was, you know, Cub Scout master. I was Indian chief princess leader. I don't even remember what they, they were. That's part of the Y system for for, for girls. Um, and I mean, you know, like K through five. So, you know, my daughters coming through that. I did that. I did Cub Scouts. We did Boy Scouts. We did church stuff. We did mission trips. So I was involved. Um, but, I mean, I was also done a lot, too. And, and part, that, part of that was the job. Um, and part of that was, you know, I, as we moved around, um, you know, that was just kind of part of it. Um, there was a big shift. Uh, I was at, so I was at Cisco and I was based, you know, I was living in RTP. And the great thing about Cisco back then was, is you, they let you travel anywhere. They didn't care. They're, I mean, which was kind of really nice. Um, you did see that with a lot of other companies, uh, but it was it was getting very clear to me, um, and I knew that by forty, uh, if I wasn't on my own or I was a you know director at Cisco, uh, that was I needed to be one or the other, um, and it it was just becoming very clear to me, kind of around thirty six, thirty seven, that um, I couldn't really move the family again. I mean. You know, the kids were getting in, you know, getting ingrained at the, you know, middle school and elementary school. And, you know, we'd really built some community. And it, I just was like, the jobs for directors were out in San Jose, you know, and, and that was kind of a hard reality. So it was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to, you know, move on to, and figure out what's the next step. Um, and so that's what we, I kind of did. Um, you know, my wife also wanted to, well, my ex-wife at the time, uh, she and now my anyway, she's my ex-wife. Uh, she wanted to go back and get a master's, and she'd been accepted at Duke, so I needed to be home more also. Uh, and at that point, Cisco was like, "Well, we're ready to give you this global job where you need to be, you know, basically traveling the globe every quarter." I'm like, "Wow, this is just not going to work." So a friend of mine and I had been working to figure out how, you know, how do we What's our next grand plan? Um, and we and we felt like investment advisors made a lot of sense for us for a couple of reasons. Number one is is that um, we had been passionate about it each other. We had I worked with her for actually we worked all five years together at, at Ericsson. We'd stay friends, um, but we actually had combined money and we're, we're managing our own our own little mini portfolio. Um, people saw what we were doing at lunchtime. We were doing research on companies. We we're helping people with their 401ks. Um, you know, at Cisco, you know, people, you know, back then we we got ISO options. Uh, when we bought a company, a lot of times they had non-qual options. Um, but and we had ESPP, we had 401k. So I actually understood all that, understood the tax implications of that, you know, because I've I've got I've got a finance undergrad, I've got an MBA. But at lunchtime, people would come by like, hey, can you help me with this? And I'd explain it to them. I'd also write down their name. So, you know, I, we we're kind of building this book. I said, all we really need to do is go back and like market to these folks. But I mean, the, the grander plan was, is we we're going to focus on technology firms in the park and, you know, help employees. And we figured we could get management clients that way. We wanted to work because uh, my partner was gay. And, she, you know, she and her partner 
you know, we said, oh, well, we can focus on that market too. I said, okay, yeah, we can do that. And then we figured we also do a mutual fund and then we wanted in-house tax. We were have a CPA and we're having a state attorney, right? So we had a full shot. So that was the grand plan. That's literally what we wrote down. I've got the, I still have the red binder that we put together in 2001 or two. And um, so, so I was the, I was the front person. I was the one that was doing the marketing seminar. And they weren't really marketing seminars. We did educational seminars, which was great. Cisco, for literally 10 years after I was there, would let me in once a month, sometimes more than that, to, you know, and they were looking for people to do education for all these engineers. On, And I had 14 different topics I would talk about. Everything from, you know, investing in how to buy a house to, you know, understanding your stock options and what you should do with your 401k and uh, you know, we built a huge client base out of that. Um, so that 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 was working. Um, we really tried the LGBT market. And you also have to remember, this is 22 years ago. So the market was very different back then. I mean, there were pride parades. <laughs> you know, there wasn't companies that, you know, put out colored T-shirts. So that market was not really going too well for me. You know, I, I, I'm a... I'm I'm a, I'm, just, I'm a straight white male, and it just you know anytime I would meet with a couple, although I had the technical skills to to determine what they needed, you know it just it was the relationship, right? Um, so my my lesbian partners they were doing okay, you know, and they were bringing in a few clients, but you know they were really more portfolio and operations, and I just said, look, this isn't working for me down here, right? This is it's just not. I mean, we're not making the connections. So we just, you know, we tossed that part of the business, right? And then we actually did a mutual fund. It's called the Africa Frontier Fund. Um, we had, we actually had to get licenses in six markets in, in Africa. And that did, it, it did pretty well. We had a great idea. It just, we couldn't get scale on it. And so, you know, that was, we ran at that pretty hard um, for three years. Um, so, you know, and then we folded that. So, you know, we learned from that, did a lot of interesting things with that. But at the end of the day, it was like, okay, this is just, unless it's your full focus, it just doesn't grow. Um, and it's hard to do. Uh, and then we also had a bad market. So, you know, that was kind of another piece of it. And then, lo and behold, if we'd actually done a little bit of research, first of all, a state attorney is like being on their own. And CPAs in the state of North Carolina have to have their own business. They can't work for somebody else, which is kind of, it's, it's a, so it was, it was a regulatory issue. So, you know, to kind of get around that, we said, well, we'll just work with any CPA that's out there, right? And then, as you know, you get, you know, you get to work with some of them and you start, okay, you're better than this one. And this one specializes in, you know, this one, we actually had a guy that really specialized in the options. So we would send people that had complicated options stuff to him. Um, you know, then there's people that really want to be in real estate or they have real estate portfolios. And we actually found a really good person that that's really, that they understood. So you started to understand that from a niche standpoint, you know, that, okay, there's different people like that. Um, Larry, let me just ask when you told me that leaving Cisco is one of the hardest things you did. So how yeah. did, I'm sure a lot of people are like, yeah, yeah, this is so perfect. This guy's know everything. And then he checks out. <laughs> how did you think about it? Right. How did you man think about risk? If you will, managing the downside, I always think is then you don't have the risk. But seriously, you know, it's, it's, you have a stable, you know, job getting paid well. You're flying around the world, 
And I think a lot of people could think that that's pretty scary to just literally pull the plug. So pulling the plug, yeah, probably one of the hardest things I personally had to do. Um, I mean, we did we did two years of prep to get ready for this. Um, so I, I started taking classes in 2003 uh, for my CFP exam. Um, we incorporated in in 03. Uh, then I started studying for my, my securities licenses, passed all those. Um, and then as we rolled into 2004, my my other two partners had moved. They they wanted to change locations. They moved from Texas to Massachusetts to be closer to family. Um, and they had, she had a one-year, you know, buyout. So she she was okay for a year. Um, I had, had paid off the house. So I knew that our expenses would be low. Um, but I also needed to kind of get us, to, you know, moving forward. So... So we signed our first client in May 2004. I mean, I just remember this very clearly. And then as we got towards the end, um, you know, I told my manager at Cisco I was going to leave. Um, they, they didn't want me to leave. We ended up negotiating a, a part-time package, which I thought, okay, that's really good because I could slowly start to slide out of this as we build it. And 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 we were not hit, hitting our revenue projections. I mean, we thought we'd be growing a lot faster than we did. Um, and I remember our first year tax return, we, we had gross revenue of $6,000. So, I mean, that's not feeding two families. Um, so we knew we had traction, but you're right. I mean, I, I had a great, you know, senior manager job at Cisco. And it was like, what are you doing stepping off the cliff? And, and that was really the hardest um, transition. And I think part of it was is, you know, I knew financially, I said, you know, we'll get there. It's going to take us longer than we thought. Um, and, and, you know, we just believed in ourselves and, and we moved forward. But the, it actually actually probably came back to my mom and my dad. Um, actually, my mom. Um, and she just said, you can do this. It's just like, go. You know, it's just like, you know, and it's going to be hard. Um and and actually, fortunately, you know, when I moved from New York to Columbia, I took a, I mean, I took a sixty percent pay cut, um, and I made it back up, you know, in commissions. And then, you know, and I, I kind of reminded myself of that um, because then when I when I left Ericsson and went to Cisco, I took um, I took about a forty percent pay cut. But you know, this time I'm I'm taking basically a hundred percent pay cut, and. You know, we just managed it. So it was very hard. Um, but once I left, it was very freeing. It was really kind of, you know, but we ran hard every day, you know, for, for two solid years. So we got, you know, revenue to start paying, pulling salaries and covering expenses and everything. So, Did you ever have any moments where you're like, oh, shoot, this is really not going to work? Or was it just like, it's going to work? So I, I knew the technology piece was going to work. Um, so, and, and that's, you know, we, we pretty rapidly, so no, we knew the business had a sound, um, 
move forward strategy, right? And we knew that we were, because we were bringing clients on. Um, and, and it, it gets kind of beyond, you know, you, you're supposed to always ask friends and family first, which, you know, we, we went through that list pretty quickly. We've, we've got those on, but it really was the education seminars that I was doing that is where I knew, you know, it's just it's just a matter of time, right? Because every time I did a seminar, you know, typically I would get three to six clients out of it, right? So at that point, it was just, we just knew we, we could do it. We just had to build the scale. Um, and, and we had one big client that took, you know, a year longer to come on board than, you know, they had originally promised, which... Had we had them, you know, in early 04, it wouldn't have been so bad, but um, it took, actually, it took two years to make them on board. But um, I I never didn't think it wouldn't work, you know, from that standpoint. I mean, there were sectors that, that didn't work, right? I mean, um, you know, trying to bring in an estate attorney, some of those things just didn't work. But we found workarounds, right? You just kept working at it. But no, I never felt like, oh my gosh, I got to throw in the towel and go back to work at, you know, at tech firm. That's awesome. So Larry, what's your your dream for the business or just looking ahead professionally? That's a great question. Um, So, you know, right now the dream for the business is is, um, a mentor I had a long time ago who was vice president of Gibson Guitar um was selling paper when i met him he was actually ed sunberg sent me to him this guy was based in tennessee and um i said i said why you why'd you do this and he says well he says let me just tell you something he says he says most corporations get rid of their uh management when they get to their 50s if you're not the ceo by 50 he says he says you won't you, you won't stay in a major corporation and i said okay and he said look he says, I sell a commodity product, paper, right? He, saw, he was selling note cards and business cards and letterhead. You know, this is before we all had printers in our homes. And he goes, just provide excellent customer service and always be there. He says, and you'll do fine. So, I mean, that was kind of what I, I took to heart. So I think um, as we focus for the next, I, you know, five or six years. I mean, we've got enough capacity now to, to grow the business, um, probably another 50% before we add on more people. Um, from day one, we've been very big on focused on bringing in technology and using technology. Um, as a matter of fact, I sent to our ops person today, I said, do you need to go to this conference so you can learn about this new software that's coming out? Um, so I, I never want my kids asked me it was very funny when I when I started they're like do you want to be like Merrill Lynch and I was like I I do not want to be like Merrill Lynch I mean I you know I, I don't want to manage people anymore um so Chris and I our portfolio manager um we not only are we good friends um uh, but we're we're great at working together I mean we share an office we talk all the time um, our ops guy, Tom, is very strong. And, you know, we feel like we can grow the business at our own pace, you know, another 50%. And and then we'll just have to see. I mean, I want to make sure whatever we do that we take care of our clients, you know, kind of moving forward. Um, but we're not, you know, all of our business now is, is almost 100% referral. 
uh, or it's, you know, really helping families. Um, because the, the interesting thing is, is that the clients that we picked up, because we were very tech focused, right? So we were not the firm you went to if you lived in Chapel Hill, right? But if you were in the park, you knew us, right? So we've got clients in 14 states, three foreign countries. You know, I we deal in uh, 15 time zones, you know, with a client base. Um, so we're there. But the interesting thing is, is we get the phone call like, oh, my dad used to manage a portfolio. He was 86 and just had a stroke. No one in the family knows what's going on. Will you go see them? Right. So, so unlike most businesses, we've actually grown up into the parents. Um, you know, and then we've also, as kids come out of college, we, we offer them to, um, you know, we offer to go through the, ch- the child adult at this point, the adult child, um, you know, we'll go through and help them get their 401k started or get a Roth IRA started. Um, just because part of that is just giving back. And part of it's like, look, you don't realize how important this is right now to do this. So we're not trying to grow 8x or 30x or, you know, all those fun numbers we used to throw around at Cisco. And it's just, you know what? We're making a good living. We're providing great service. We're continuing to grow. And, you know, I love what I'm doing. Um, you know, I, there are people in this business working into their 70s. You know, I, I, I could see that. Um, maybe not at the pace that I'm doing this. Um, but that's kind of where we see the business going. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's kind of the non-MBA thing, right? Where you're supposed to grow, you know, you're supposed to be growing 15% a year. No, you don't have to. You know, if you're growing 7% a year, that's a pretty good growth rate. Do the non-MBA thing. I'm writing that down. So I have to ask, so if people are thinking about um, their financial support, just a few thoughts for folks, uh, things they might want to consider. Yeah, so I, and this is from an education standpoint. I think first and foremost, no matter what, and this applies to everybody, right? And is understand how the person across the table from you is getting paid. Right? So whether you're buying a car, you're buying a house, you're buying groceries, whatever it is, right? Because what that person's being measured on or is you know what's going to drive their behavior in, when their interactions with you. So I think that's always a key thing. I think so, and that's why we adopted, and why I really believe in being an independent, registered independent advisor. So um, you know we get paid on the percentage of assets that we manage, um, but and this always this sounds a little scary at first. Um, but my, my former partner used to say, we have no conscience. And that would always shock the client. They were like, what? Or the prospect. And, and she, and then the follow-up was, is when we sit down to take a look at manage your portfolio, we adopt what, what, what we've had a conversation about and what we believe your conscience is. So if you're socially responsible, whatever that definition is for you, you know, we're going to act that way. If you don't really care about anything and all you really want to do is looking for a return, then we'll do that in your portfolio. Right. If you're so being independent, we is we've taken on a higher level of fiduciary responsibility as far as the SEC is concerned. But we also feel like, you know, we're going to tailor make 
what the client needs, right? And I, I was actually on the phone yesterday with a client. She's like, would you take my sister on? She goes, you do such a great job. You understand what I want. You understand what my needs are, right? You work with my CPA so well. And she's like, I don't know, you know, she's, they don't have this in, anywhere in New York. So it's just kind of funny. And I was like, one well, they do, but you just, you just never found it. And we're, you know, we're a better value. But um, so I think also understand what's the key philosophy for, of the firm. And I think people never ask that question. And I always, you know, people don't ask it when I talk to them. I'm like, you know, I, I think it's very important that you, first of all, you need to be setting aside at least 10% of your gross income for retirement, right? Uh, the pensions don't exist anymore. Um, the second thing is, is, you know, we think it's very important that you go into retirement with no debt, um, which freaks people out a little bit, right? Because I, you know, everyone, there's people out there that say, oh, there's good debt, bad debt, you know, so that's a different philosophy, right? So uh, the other philosophy who is, is, hey, if you have a 401k and you have a match, don't give up that free money, right? You're putting, putting aside money most of the time makes sense, you know, to max out your 401k before you start putting money in IRAs or other investments, you know? So there's, and that's kind of in general, but, and, and people are specific or unique, but, but those are kind of the key things is, you know, especially my kids is like, look, put at least 10% aside, start a Roth IRA, put money in annually, um, you know, and keep your debt to a minimum. Right. It's okay to have a mortgage, you know, especially when you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s. But, you know, by the time you hit your 50s, you should be trending pretty close to paying that thing off. And by the time you retire, you need to, to have paid it off. Um, well, Larry, I'm going to I'm going to cut in here. Oh, yeah, I have to wrap. And so I want to ask you just one question. Um, you know, you've had this really, really fascinating journey. And I as becoming into your own business and really achieving success on your terms, what have you learned? about yourself? Um, I've learned I'm really resilient. Um, and that's, that has probably been uh, that. And as my father always said, take the high road. It's not always the easiest path. It's not, but at the end of the day, it, it'll be the true path. Um, so that has not always been easy to take the high road. Um, and I think, so taking the high road, being true to yourself, um, you know, resiliency, uh, and and just keep trying and, and ask other people, ask other people for help or support. You're not the smartest person on the planet earth. You're just not. And there's lots of other smart people out there and they give you great ideas and great advice. Um, and it's, you know, being willing to accept that uh, and give back. I think, you know, that's, uh, we've always given back. I've always tried to give back. I've encouraged, uh, we give away, I have all of the employees get to pick a charity and we, and we give money away at, at Thanksgiving uh, to that. And it, it it's just important for me to do that. Um, so. It's, uh, it's very clear you're, giving back to a lot of those clients to helping them um, really have a peace of mind with their finances, which I just, um, which I think is wonderful. And I'm just so inspired by um, 
by who you are and, and how you're really serving the world and all the help you've given me, Larry. So I want to uh, thank you for sharing this crazy journey and giving an inside look into those peoples and experiences that have shaped you. So, um, you know, if I can be helpful in any way, my friend, I am here. I'm cheering you for you very big time. And uh, you are part of the solution. You're helping us all to be safe, seen and heard and our true and very best selves. You take good care. Thank you. You too. Oh, folks, that's so awesome. I'm going to have a thought for the week from James Joyce. Mistakes are the portals of discovery. And my gratitude to everyone who makes this show possible, the stellar crew at Voice America, the very talented Eric Hatton, who's behind the scenes supporting every episode. And that is a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Larry's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 